everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Driven by Cause. We've got a great episode for you today. And before we get started, I'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsors, Arriva and MaestroSoft. Now, as the industry's only completely integrated and fully automated, all-in-one cloud-based digital fundraising, donor relationship management, healthcare hospitality, and auction software platform, uh, we're helping nonprofits achieve more to accomplish their mission. I'd like to give a warm hello to my fantastic co-host, David Blyer. David, how are you doing today? Hey, thank you, Jay. I'm doing awesome. It's great to be here today and introduce our fabulous guests, Brian Grimmins and Nathan Chappelle. Nathan and Brian are co-authors of the best-selling book, The Generosity Crisis, The Case for Radical Connection to Solve Humanity's Great Challenges, which confronts alarming trends of giving in America. Brian is also the head of his own nonprofit consulting firm and 100, a coalition of marketing agencies united for change. Nathan is the senior vice president of Donor Search's AI and is well-known a TED Talks presenter on the intersection of AI and philanthropy. Thank you both for being here today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. No, we're here. We're excited about today's uh, uh, show and let's go ahead and get started. Uh, with that, I'll start a question of both Brian and Nathan, uh, and you can answer it anyway, but I'd love if you could share with our listeners some of the information about yourselves and how you both got started in the profit industry. Nathan, go ahead. I'm happy to jump in. I, you know, probably a, a, a telltale story of someone who was trying to figure out their way in business. I joined a board of directors at a local boys and girls club here. I live in Orange County, California. And I think my second meeting as a board member, the director quit. And uh, <laughs> I had grown up in a boys and girls club, was very passionate about the cause. I was also going to grad school to get my MBA at the time. And uh, when they tapped me on the shoulder to see if I would kind of take care of things for a period of time, I thought that meant, you know, six weeks and not seven years. But um, I truly, it was, it didn't take long for me to fall in love with the work. I, and frankly, I think through my educational experience, hadn't really thought about nonprofit as a career. I had thought about it as something that you volunteer and do and had grown up in a family that did those things. Um, and I was just so fortunate to find my way in my little slice of, uh, of working and, you know, doing good and, and working and feeling good about the the contribution I was making to society. And that was back in the year 2000. So it's crazy. Um, never planned it, but really grateful for where I, where it's brought me. That's fantastic. Yeah. And I'll, I'll piggyback on the didn't plan it um, theme for, for my story. And that's, I come from a, a family that was, we were always very involved. Our parents, you know, had us involved, whether we wanted to be in our local communities and different aspects. And so the, the concept of service was just part of, I felt like uh, just very natural, something that we always did. And that was further supported by the educational institutions I went to, uh, specifically my last one, St. John's University here in New York, a big, big commitment to service uh, and did a lot of volunteering. And then I was graduating from St. John's actually with my master's. One of my dear friends uh, asked me, you know, what I wanted to do, and I had no idea at the time. And he introduced me to a gentleman by the name of Mike Hoffman, who was <clears throat> then starting Changing Our World, and met Mike. And he had a vision for the firm, but also a vision for the sector that I found very interesting and very compelling. And that was, you know, putting not-for-profit work and consulting alongside work with helping corporations and foundations. I thought this was 
a really interesting place and a real opportunity to have an impact. As we were talking earlier, really, you know, merging together the per personal passions I had with the a professional career, and that that was twenty you know twenty two years ago. I joined Changing Our World, and as they say, the rest is rest is history. That's great. Well, it's great background. Let's get into it. Uh, in your best-selling book, The Generosity Crisis, The Case for Radical Connection to Solve Humanity's Greatest Challenges, uh, you analyze the changing nature of philanthropy in America and why its demise could herald the end of the modern nonprofit. That's pretty heavy, pretty heavy <laughs> statement right there. Uh, you state that within fewer than 50 years, we could see the demise of charitable giving in uh, what you call the generosity crisis, and how do we get how do we get to that state as you describe it in the book? Yeah, I, I'm happy to jump in, and then Brian will definitely add. We we're fortunate that we um, have both have I think a lot of experience in the nonprofit sector. We get to do a lot of public speaking together too, so we tend to finish each other's sentences. Um, you know, really, you know, for for me, the journey started in 2010 when the Giving Pledge was. Uh, created in this idea that, you know, it would have one of two effects that it would either inspire and increase generosity overall, because, you know, generosity had not been really in the mainstream media since Carnegie and Rockefeller were, you know, kind of competing against their big gifts. And um, I actually did a study in 2012, where I analyzed the evolution of mega gifts, and it had two, you know, kind of very divergent conclusions. And one, it would inspire generosity and the other would it would create more of a crowding out effect and this is not the only reason why we're in the state that we're in but it got me um in a place back in 2012 where i started studying the trends in giving pretty deeply to the point where when giving usa's report would come out i'd block my calendar every year and i would read the entire report report which as you know this a few hundred pages and read the footnotes which actually i found more um, telling. And it turned out by reading the footnotes and essentially realizing that while giving on the outside appeared to be alive and well and 2.1% of GDP for the last 40 years, that the mix of who was giving, which is not reported directly in Giving USA, was changing. And I figured this out by essentially figuring out how much money they were pulling out of the report every year that were construed as ultra high net worth gifts those ultra high net worth gifts that essentially are, are masking an issue and have been for many, many years, I mean, a few decades, that essentially, you know, generosity appears to be thriving um, and resilient. But at the same time, if we take out those ultra high net worth gifts, we find essentially many, many fewer people are, are making gifts. And it really came to a lot of conversations with Brian and I, Brian and I over years of literally just you know, having a drink and talking about how does, you know, where does this end and what, you know, what can be done? And then one day I remember when we were um, talking and, and it was really pre-book, looking at the trajectory, the, the negative slope of this percentage of households that give. And like any business, if you drew a straight line, I mean, because it's fairly steep, drew a straight line, it ends somewhere. And so it didn't take a lot of math to figure out that that line ended at 49 years. And that was probably the moment for Brian and I that was pretty startling to say, yeah, like if there's no intervention and nothing changes, we're, you know, imagining a future that we would not wish upon our kids and our grandkids and their kids. So I think that was, um, I mean, it's heavy, but I mean, the reality is also a needed conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would add to that. I mean, you asked, you know, how did we get here as well? And I think 
building upon that, one, one thing that I know I wanted to make sure we had in the book, and Nathan and I talked about this a lot, was this, what we ended up calling the competition for connection. And what we wanted to really drive home for, for the nonprofit leaders was that whether they knew it or not, they were competing for their all of us as Americans and anybody and anybody globally who donates. We are, they are, we they are competing for our time, our attention, our dollars, whatever that we may have. And and that's maybe obvious, but um the amount of attention, the amount of competition increased over the last 15 years. You know, I don't even know what fold because of the you know use of technology, social media, emails, etc. When you then couple that, and this is like we talk about in the book we, as a good thing, but but it's something that certainly needs to be aware of as it relates to traditional giving. Companies, many companies, have become what I'd call more mission oriented. They talk about their own values. They talk about their own commitments to society, in such a way that the lines are blurred. I have a hard time not believing that the lines are absolutely blurred now about if I want to have an impact in the society or an impact on the environment and I can only give a hundred dollars, well, maybe a hundred dollar sweater from Patagonia, which I also get something back from and it allows them to take the profit and do the great work they do in the environment. Well, maybe that's a different choice I'm making than 20 years ago. when if I wanted to have impact, the really only place to go was the nonprofit sector. So that competition thing, we thought was really important to bring out uh, from the background, if you will, to make sure that not-for-profits really understood the, the landscape in which they were working. Well, when we came to this conclusion, we really struggled on what to call the book. And, you know, at the time, to be honest, there wasn't a name for the generosity crisis. It was a lot of a lot of people saying, well, there's no problem at all. You know, generosity is live. I mean, we had literally like lots of debates where we had to look at the underlying data about, you know, increases in homelessness and food insecurity. And if generosity was the was thriving, we would see different, you know, aspects of that. We really struggled with it, you know, but at the end of the day, I think you have different ways of dealing with issues. You can either pretend they don't exist. You can, you know, just you know, put a lot of lipstick on the pig or you could address it head on. And and I think uh, we were encouraged by our publisher. We were encouraged by a lot of our, our colleagues to say, you know what, just name it, like name it for what it is. Let it be essentially, you know, the, the bell, you know, that needs to ring so that people can at least at the very least, which has been our premise from the very beginning, encourage people to talk about generosity, in which yeah. case, I don't think I've ever had a bad conversation around, you know, so I think that that was really what it was really all about is there's something going on that doesn't end well. We should have conversation about it. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate the concern because it is a problem. I mean, just in general, what advice or strategies for how, and I think that's the key word to combat this generosity crisis, but from two different perspectives, one as an everyday person, and the second as a nonprofit executive. Yeah, I'll, I'll take it that last one, uh, the nonprofit executive point. Uh, for me, the and we've been getting this question a lot, and rightfully so, uh, what advice do you have for me? And I, I think one thing I've found helps a lot is the simple notion of uh, being honest with yourselves about the strategies, the engagements that you're having. Are they ones that tend to be more transactional or, or are they more relational? And if they if they're if you're falling into the trap of being transactional, I think you run the risk of having that competition for connection, losing out on it. it, or just it just becomes something that's too easily traded off. If it's relational, you know, and we've talked about in the book, I know you and you know me. I mean, these are deep 
relations and you and you understand that what the impact your dollars are having, whether that's five dollars or five million dollars. I mean, this isn't just a notion for just like the major gift work. I think it's we think it's for the entire spectrum. Uh, that for us is bomb enough for profit executive listening. Begin thinking about that. Is it transactional or is it relational? And one thing that we've liked to talk about more recently is, you know, do what type of relationship does the CFO and the head of development, the head of fundraising have in your organization? Be right because the more that they are working in tandem, the more what we're saying philosophically, relational versus transactional versus relational, getting everybody on the same page philosophically about what type of organization and the strategies that you're driving towards, are they being supported operationally would be the big picture things. And then I, I know, as Nathan said, as we've started to move around the country and talking, we've had after our talks, some fascinating conversations with nonprofit execs about how this is maybe or not manifesting within their own organization. And then, then you get into the more specific conversations, but those are the broad, that's the broad lens at which I would, I would encourage people to begin to think about. And I'll add to that too, because, you know, being a nonprofit practitioner, a majority of my career, you know, the ROI in relationship first fundraising actually plays out very well. If we're talking about the cost to acquire a single donor that has about a 20% chance of retaining, versus fostering a more radical connection with someone who will stay with you longer has a 15x lifetime value. So so this makes sense mathematically, also philosophically, you know, because people want to feel like they're part of something, not just transactionally, but as part of a relationship. And to the answer to the first part of the question, you know, where's this, where does this start from just an average person? And it sounds so silly, to be honest, because it's like for people that are are part of the 49.6% of Americans that give. It's intuitive. Like we were raised with this idea, the virtues of giving, you know, it was the responsibility and the virtues of giving back were part of how we were raised. But when we put on that other hat of the 51% that don't, it's really around first being aware that your ability to connect is limited. Like you're to Brian's point of the competition for connection. I think most people go around life thinking, well, I could connect deeply with whoever and as many people as I want or many organizations I want. And the reality is we can't, you know, your ability to connect deeply is, is, is finite. So I think first it's making conscious decisions about who you um, engage with or, or what organizations you engage with, and then being, you know, conscious of that to go deeper. That starts there. The other part is so simple that it's, it's embarrassing to talk about. In fact, we released a top 10 ways to foster radical connection on our website, the download for free, because people were like, where do we start? It's literally like things like pay it forward in the line, you know, start, start, you know, be, be a good citizen, things that we take for granted if you're on that, you know, the 49% of Americans, um, you know, literally like return a shopping cart for someone that's, you know, you know, struggling with their child and trying to get their kids in the car, just yeah. be a good human being. And honestly, that's infectious. And again, because we're on the side of it, we feel like it's trivial, but we're living in a world that it's not trivial. Yeah, you, you're, you're describing attitude. Um, right. Have, have a giving attitude. Yeah, yep. it really is. Yeah. It really is. That's where it starts. Do you, do you believe uh, philanthropy should play a role in politics? And, and if so, what degree does this involvement re uh, resemble? Uh, do you believe it helps organizations to connect with younger uh, constituents? Yeah, that's a fascinating uh, question. Um, 
uh, uh, to, I'll set with a, set it from a contextual standpoint, the way I view it, right? I mean, uh, and by the context I'll provide it is some of the more recent unfortunate events that have happened, you know, the earthquake in Turkey, the tsunami. I'll, I'll bring it back specifically to where I am in, in New York and a few years back, Superstorm Sandy and seeing people not too far from me get their whole lives completely devastated, right? The and 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 what I saw there personally and again professionally, government showed up did, did by many accounts here locally a phenomenal job of, you know, getting people what they needed in the in the earliest hours and getting beginning to put some of that really the essence the essential items back together. And then I saw some amazing organizations like the Salvation Army who had been raising a lot of funds come in months and years after the fact to provide things that were still needed. Then I saw some social organizations social service organizations come in early days, late days, even later for the mental health issues that were around people who lost their lives, right? So you saw the governmental role, I saw, saw the role of the importance that not-for-profits being supported by philanthropies played. And I think that is, I've, and we talk about it in the book, and I, I live this, it would change our world every day. So I get to see the ecosystem that is our society is partially governmental, partially not-for-profits, partially for profits, but the role that philanthropy plays in that, I think is critical. And then taking a step further, the role nonprofits play in keeping our society here in the United States, what it is that we want it to be. I will, I find that no one knows that it needs, and that's the first, second chapter we write in the book, right? About how important the not-for-profit sector is to our, to our society. But the, more specifically to your, to your point, Jay, I mean, I think, and I've had the chance to partner with and help some of these organizations, but the younger generations have been able to often advocate and rally and raise funds for organizations to um, to promote, as I said earlier, advocate some issues that then get attention. So the, up the ladder, if you will, on the hill in Congress. And I think maybe even for some philanth young philanthropists, they're not even yet eligible to vote, but they can move some money and raise some, you know, in, whether it be in their clubs or their schools about issues that they care about. And I think that that's an important aspect within reason we have some great debates about philanthropy moving some of the political decisions but about your specific question about engaging younger folks i think it's a it's actually a really important way they can participate in the democracy so i think there's a as with anything in life when it's balanced right i think there's a role for philanthropy working with po politics yeah and, and moving from politics for to for-profit businesses what do you and we hear a lot about you know social corporate responsibility what are your thoughts around for-profit businesses having some form of social corporate responsibility? And can you identify what you think those responsibilities would look like? And do you have any successful examples of this that you could share? Again, having the chance to work with ma some major corporations at, at this very issue, David, I, I do think companies, when aligned right, can play a major role here. And by that, I mean when they can put their assets, their products, their people, their knowledge, their IP towards a societal issue, um, when it's done authentically and it's done in a very organic way, I think they can do some great things. When companies overreach, dare I say more for the recognition and the marketing so they can sell more products, thankfully, I think more of us are aware of that and kind of call them out on that. So I think it's forcing companies to be true, to be authentic to who they are because you know, I had the opportunity to partner last year with, with CVS Health and to see what they did during COVID uh, and, and using their technology and the amount of data that they had to map the, the, the disease, move the vaccinations to, to towns that were underserved. And they were doing this behind the scenes and not even telling anyone. And, and it just 
mind-boggling to me. And then when I see go forward, what they're doing in major cities to improve the health health of of cities as a whole, because they are you know they're they're more accessible CVS storefronts than than the hospitals are in this country, and they've accepted that mantra as being a health, the leading health company. And so I, I, I yeah I could go all day about this, but but again that's an example of them being true to who they are and doing it for the right reasons. And I'll come back to the last question. They're doing it in partnership with government and partnership with other not-for-profits and with other corporates and are not running around saying, look at us, look at us, look at us. They're just improving outcomes and, le- and certainly letting you know about it within reason, but they're doing it from my standpoint for the right reasons. And yeah. in the right way. Yeah. In the right way, even and, better. You know, and I, it, it's not an either or, you know, thing as well. I mean, we have nonprofits that are, you know, creating B corporations and we have, you know, corporations that are partnering with nonprofits in new novel ways. So I, you know, consumers are speaking with their wallets and voting with their wallets every day. I mean, I, you know, I, I know I do. I mean, and I'm the poster child for Patagonia because if I go to a new city, I'll take an Uber where they always put them like far away from everything else, you know, and I'll, I'll pay the $16 Uber to go to the Patagonia store in that area because I want to see what it looks like. And, feel like I'm part of something bigger my, than myself. And more than 50% of consumers will not buy products from organizations that defy their personal values. So this is a, a major shift and I don't think it's going to go away. I mean, everything goes in cycles, but, you know, going from when I graduated in undergrad, which was increase shareholder value at any cost, which is cost of employees, the cost of, you know, the environment or whatever it might be to, doing good is good for business is a model that I think will be around for a while. And I do think there, you know, in our book, we talk a lot about this, but a lot of lessons to learn from for-profits specifically that have a lot of R&D budgets and, you know, experts in branding that can really tap into the hearts and wallets of their consumers. And I think the other big shift here is that I think forever we thought that, you know, for-profit organizations were trying to extract one-time dollars, Mm -hmm. like just, get a transaction, you know, and, and that was the end of it. But we live in a subscription economy now where there is now an incentive for corporations to build relationships with individuals over a long period of time, not just transactionally. And I think that's where a lot of nonprofits have failed to, to really learn from that. And, you know, of course, in our book, we talk about Patagonia before it was a nonprofit, but we talk about Ben and Jerry's and Body Shop and so many others that, that have done CVS and UBS that have really transformed their businesses to align better with what the expectations are of the modern consumer. Yeah. By the way, I, I love that you keep on using the relational and relational and relational. I think it is, you know, uh, you know, we're all in the nonprofit space, whether it's in the, you know, software or donor search or, you know, changing our world, but we're always trying to, but, but to teach them about the relationship and not just the transaction. The transaction will come, but if you're building that long-term relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Nathan, you know, as as one of the world's foremost experts on the intersection between artificial intelligence, which I really love, and you know, it's it's still growing so quickly, and philanthropy, which is such a great two things together. Also, you know, as you serve on as a senior VP of Donor Search. You're leading research and development efforts dedicated to leveraging, you know, this whole artificial intelligence to help the nonprofit organizations truly harness actual insights through big data. I mean, it's a it's a lot. 
in your TED talk, you used a, a phrase called, see, we listened to the TED talk. How's that? Right. Yeah. <laughs> about, about precision philanthropy. Can you share what that phrase means and also identify your thoughts be, behind AI and how it can help nonprofit organizations? Yeah. Yeah. No, happy to. And I always say, if you want to be an industry expert in anything, pick the most obscure connection between two things that you can find and draw a dot and then you can be the expert. <laughs> it's uh, I don't think I ever in, intended to, to, to be that, but it's turned out to be that way. I, you know, five plus years ago, I was, um, I was working at a cancer hospital and, and we essentially had this grand challenge from our CEO to raise a, a, a lot more money. Uh, but there was a, a disclosure that we couldn't hire more people. And it made us really rethink. We knew what would happen if we continued on the same path. We would, you know, grow incrementally or stay flat, you know, over years, which we had done. Or we could take a lesson from the private sector and see what they were doing to essentially measure connection. And I said, I, I, using machine learning and deep learning to prioritize, you know, not just more consumers, but better consumers. And, you know, this is a, a major journey. Um, not surprising, I was working in healthcare and in healthcare, this idea of precision medicine really essentially transformed all medicine. Medicine as we know it now is precision medicine because now we, for any serious illness, well, you know, the first thing they'll do is essentially uh, map your genotype to determine if a drug will actually help you or, or not help you or hurt you. And that's transformative in life. I mean, the largest investment of machine learning or AI, just to use the, the loosely, AI loosely is healthcare. So all healthcare now is this idea that a person doesn't have a, a, a generic disease, like there is no type of breast cancer anymore or prostate cancer, that every single person's disease is unique to their genotype. So N of one, which is essentially this idea that in every clinical trial which we did a lot of, that every person is treated as an N of one. And, and that really translates to philanthropy because we're at a place now that there's no such thing as donors or non-donors, that every person is an N of one, that every person has a varying degree of connection to any organization, that there's enough data and computational power through machine learning and deep learning, and it's affordable enough to essentially measure that depth of connection in real time. And so if I'm... You know, I'm, I'm a board member at uh, a group called FarmLink, the FarmLink project. I mean, whether things, I, my data follows me, that digital exhaust is, do I open up emails or do I, do I give, do I share things, do I volunteer? Um, every organization has experiential data that allows you to, to take that plus external data and then compute people down to this N of one. You know, what is the likelihood that a donor is going to give again within a period of time or What's the likelihood a non-donor will make their first gift is really all you're doing is measuring connection. It's, it's has nothing to do with wealth. By the way, I, even though I work for donor search, our first data project was determined that wealth is actually a very poor indicator of whether someone is altruistic, only 10%. Yeah. Uh, it's really based on connection. It's all intuitive. We, we know this to be true, but really the computational power and data wasn't there in, in previous years, essentially measure a person's depth of connection in real time. And, and that's really brings in this idea of precision philanthropy, which is that you can do micro segmentation, which is like the idea of the Holy Grail years ago, but it's now a reality. And you can treat people, you know, along their own donor journey in a way that speaks to them. And, you know, this is still new 
in our field, not new in the private sector, but new in our field. But it is really amazing to watch when you can flip the pyramid and move away from wealth-based philanthropy that focuses on you know how much someone would give versus the relationship first philanthropy, which is, are they a donor in the first place? And are they going to stay with you for a longer period of time? Yeah. Fabulous. All right, Brian, your turn. You're the creator of uh, <laughs> 100, the world's first coalition of marketing agencies united for sustainable change. And uh, your team helps organizations in every corner of the world clarify their purpose, achieve their goals, and enact meaningful change. So what inspired you to pursue this endeavor? And share, help us uh, understand a little bit, share some of your successes for us. Sure. And is uh, ditto to Nathan's answer? Is that allowable answer for me here? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm kidding, but you're going to probably, if you're paying attention, hear some <clears throat> similar viewpoints, which again, I think is why Nathan and I have been friends and, and wrote the book. So Changing Our World, uh, for those who don't know, is owned by a big holding company called the Omnicom Group. And so that's an important backdrop to the story. So when I was working at Changing Our World for many years and found myself going to a lot of our pitches and talking to potential clients and would often think after the fact, after we, in whether we won the business or not, I'd be in the hallways of the Omnicom meeting some of the other agencies and I would learn that maybe they were working for that not-for-profit I was just seeing a month ago, a week ago, whatever. And I thought, my gosh, so you're doing the, the branding or the communications or the digital or whatever they were doing. And, you know, the answer for them would be yes. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And then interesting for me uh, on twofold. One is, my gosh, I wish I had known that before before going in and talking to them. I would have been a better prepared for the, the pitch and understanding the organization. Um, but my gosh, like what those folks are doing, I'm sure, great branding work and communications work, but they themselves may or may not have had the experience in the not-for-profit sector about selling a, a mission-oriented organization, which is obviously different than a, than working for a for-profit business. And so that was sort of the the early thoughts about what eventually became 100, which was be, beginning to talk to the Omnicom leadership team about, look, there's we do a lot of work with not-for-profit organizations. Why not create a central hub? so that we can share that knowledge, share that expertise and come together as appropriate to create one team. So that when we go help a not-for-profit raise maybe a lot of money, we're doing it with a communications team next to us who's helping write the case in a very articulate way that's gonna move in the direction of that, you know, dare I say that N of one that Nathan was talking about, helping our not-for-profit clients get sharper, more strategic in the way that they communicated or how their brand helped drive philanthropy. And so, you know, when, so now what we do when we go in, you talk about some examples, is if, say, a not-for-profit hires us to help them on branding, well, we're not just going in and doing a good brand for brand's sake. We're going in and hopefully putting together a brand that we know will move the needle in engagement and philanthropy in a way that what we're talking about, move more in that relational aspect. And so it's taken the philosophy of our book, surrounding with experts from other Omnicom agencies on one team so that we communicate, we share versus throwing things over the proverbial fence and picking up and running with it. Um, and it's, you know, we've been doing it now for about seven, eight years and had a lot of success with it, you know, really short, sh shortening the time frame of working together. And hopefully that old adage, by bringing us all together, one plus one equals three on behalf of our clients. Does it ever, in the process of that, do you ever find uh, competitiveness among the 100 uh, with providing similar services? Yeah, I mean, there could be, um, so one of the things we do is if, if, if there's 
you know, kind of kind of call it the right of first refusal. If, if there's an opportunity with a not-for-profit, the first thing we'll do is we'll look internally, uh, talk internally to see, make sure if anyone's currently working there, and let's assume everything's going well, you know, we'll we'll, we'll build around that currently existing team to try to exactly, Jay, to your point, avoid um, the co- the competitiveness. The other way it manifests itself is pretty interesting, and that is when we have an opportunity and maybe we start talking internally about who might be the best agency or the best people, yeah. it starts to get competitive from people wanting to work on it. The amount of hands that go up and say, Mike, I'd love to work on that project. Um, and they're try- therefore trying to figure out who is the best team and the best individuals. But that's a good problem to have because I think it's, it shows everybody's want, willingness to be on a team that's going to be doing some really good work together for our clients. Yeah, interesting. Well, uh, as we near the end of our show, uh, we kind of shift gears a little bit. And uh, we've talked a lot about your body of work, and it's quite substantial for both of you, uh, separately and collectively. But uh, we'd be curious to know, I think our listeners would be curious to know something that uh, they would be surprised to hear about you. What what might our audience be interested in hearing that would surprise them about the two of you guys? You go first, Brian. <laughs> uh, well, the thing that gets, anytime it comes up, it gets the, are you serious response about my myself is the fact that I'm the youngest of nine kids. Uh, wow. So I, I come from a big a big family, um, as I mentioned, I think in the beginning of the show, it was a family, as I said, that was definitely oriented around our community. And our, but there was a lot of us, a lot of mouths to feed, and a lot of a lot of people to try to instill that commitment to to society around. But yeah, I, was, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I've got five sisters, three older brothers. Um, as I often say, I've got you know, ten or eleven people always telling me what to do at any one given time, which is, I think, I think helpful in the consulting world. I'm in. Mean, <laughs> So it was probably it was probably twenty years of consulting, just trying to figure out how to survive that dynamic that led me to the career I'm in. Well, I'm I'm actually shocked that Brian didn't mention Pearl Jam because I think even though it comes in the book, um, I think a few times. I, how many times now have you seen Pearl Jam, Brian? If you want to admit, fifty-seven. Fifty-seven. Yeah. No, so they're, they're Seattle based. That's where I am. I'm up here in Seattle. I think they're they're out of Seattle. Yep. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. No, he's he's a big Pearl Jam fan and I, I it's always shocking when we have a, a conversation like this and it doesn't come up so then I feel obligated to bringing it up <laughs> um, for me I, I it's kind of funny because I I mean I, I read a lot I I'm a total nerd I love tech, technological stuff I'm not a data scientist but I'm a technologist and just always looking for something new um, but it's because I'm in such a heady space on my day-to-day job and I just love it I when I go home I flip the other switch and I actually a really big woodworker and I um have a Etsy page I have an Instagram where I I do a lot of wood turning so turn like bowls and pe- I love making pens for people as as gifts and so I kind of have to flip that other switch you know and really just lean into that thing where I'm just in it you know you're you're using your hands and all of your senses from sound and vibration and everything else so it's kind of a nice side. I don't think I talk about that too often, but. Well, that's, that's why we ask because, you know, we, we sometimes spend so much time focused on what people do. We don't spend enough time focusing on who people are right? and, and getting a little insight about your Pearl Jam uh, uh, <laughs> thing Brian, and, and your wood turning. Uh, th- that's uh, you know, this is, this is why we asked that question. 
Anyway, David's got another one for you, I think. Yeah, no, and I love it because you go, we're going back to that in a, in a short time, that whole thing about relationships. And that's <laughs> really what this is about. And in a short period of time, us get, getting to know you guys a little yeah. bit better and the audience getting yeah. to know you. So this always leads us to finish our show by asking one question, and it's to each of you. What is something that we didn't ask you today that we you wish we had asked you? Well, I know I'll start. I, I know a question I'm glad you didn't ask, which is, you know, can the generosity crisis be reversed? Um, because that is, it's a very difficult, you know, the trajectory is very strong and the power that is, um, the power to be is very strong. I think Brian and I, our biggest hope is that there's no need for a second book called The Generosity Crisis. That's our, our wish and desire. I, you know, I guess a question that I would ask, you know, that I started to just recently think about is like, what's next? And, and I, I see more and more instances of this idea of radical connection surfacing in local philanthropy and really this idea that, you know, the future of, of generosity is local um, and what that means for big national organizations um, as well and how to act and appear local. Um, I think it's just a super interesting topic that, uh, you know, Brian and I have messed around with the idea of writing another book. I, I think this type of um, shift in people wanting to make an impact, we see it in things like GoFundMe, where they uh, GoFundMe transaction happens once every second, 24-7. And a lot of that is people wanting to give to people locally, not through nonprofits. And so um, I don't know how you frame that in a question, but it's really like, what is the future of of generosity? And, you know, is it with or without nonprofits? But I think no matter what, it comes down to this idea of this this radical connection and people wanting to make a difference. And the one question that I was hoping you would ask for me since spring training is underway is how many, <laughs> how many games will the Mets win this year? And that, that answer would be 105. So um, looking forward to a, hopefully a successful year. It's been a while since we've been able to raise the trophy since 1986. So this might be our year. Well, I, I hope you used uh, Nathan's AI stuff on this. <laughs> there we go money ball all the way i think they already, right. i think they already spent their miracle uh, many years ago a couple of <laughs> hey, well well brian and nathan thank you for everything um and we'll be right back after this we are a team that has had an enduring influence on the nonprofit industry for more than three decades. We pride ourselves on developing and delivering technology with a purpose. Software born of a genuine understanding and passion for cause. We are relentlessly dedicated to our client's success. We are with our clients for good. We are Ariva, tech with purpose, driven by cause. Ariva is the trusted advisor and market leader of fundraising, donor relationship management, and auction software and services. Exceed further, our evolutionary all-in-one digital fundraising and donor relationship management software is helping nonprofits worldwide further their mission, transform fundraising, and cultivate relationships with donors and constituents. Our Maestro Auction virtual, live, and silent auction software, text-to-bid, virtual and mobile bidding software, and text-to-fund, text-based donation software are helping nonprofits raise billions of dollars through thousands of virtual fundraising events, charity auctions, and galas. Visit Ariva.com and reach out today and see how Ariva can help your nonprofit organization go further. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back. It's time for us to ask the questions uh, of what you've submitted today. So, Jay, what is our first question that was submitted? 
Yeah, we we get questions uh, through the podcast. You can submit your questions if you if you'd like. But uh, this particular question this is actually from Alicia. Thank you, Alicia, for your question. How do you capture new email addresses and grow your online presence as a nonprofit? Sure, I'll, I'll go on a on a completely unscientific way of doing it. You know, one of the things we've talked about in other shows we've been on is helping to understand people and building towards a radical connection. One of the things I've encouraged nonprofits of all sizes to do is to survey their supporters and really ask them questions about, forget about giving, ask them questions about themselves, about the organization. And and in doing so, I think anytime you're engaging with them, asking how might we stay in touch with you, emails certainly capturing there. I've seen a lot of our clients do phenomenal work of capturing emails at events, particularly now that more and more events are coming back um, post-COVID. So I know those aren't the, the data, send it away, you'll get you'll get some emails back. But I think that's an organic, healthy, um, as I said, relational way, I think, of being, being able to build up your email file. Yeah. And obviously, this is a space I work in every day. You know, we collect emails from all of our AI clients, and we do that in, in whatever format they come. But, you know, it's really interesting when you're looking at that digital exhaust email. Of course, open rate doesn't really work uh, well anymore. But we find very strong correlations between um, in terms of frequency of day of the week, time of the day that they're open. In fact, in higher education, one of the biggest telltale signs of an, an alum making their first gift is essentially day of the week and time of the day, but all the way down to subject line as well. So uh, we'll find positive and negative correlations within email subject lines as it relates to giving. In one instance where we found a, a client that was using the word latte, which was in for the price of a latte, uh, which you give to your alma mater, the word latte in machine learning actually, and deep learning really uh, became a negative correlation to giving. People actually didn't really like it and didn't respond well. And so we get down to the actual words and quantify whether or not um, that has statistical value, either positively and, or negatively versus things like, would you support or partner? Yeah. And so it's really, you know, emails are great because they're in such large volume as well. It's where deep learning thrives uh, to be able to actually use word clouds out of uh, those emails. And we have we have clients that have sent us half a billion emails um, just in one file, which is one of our large national clients. And it's amazing the insights that you can find in mining that email to that and then go back and help you strategically look at what is the you know day of the week, the time of the day. But what is the messaging that we're using as well? Yeah, I was just going to add, I, I I think your points are amazing, first of all, on driving new email addresses. I think an, another great way with our technology today is through your peers. I mean, you know, you talk about, you know, GoFundMe and crowd fundraising, but I think really what's important also in gathering new email addresses is, is the email addresses that I'm getting, are they going to really help me with donor acquisition? Uh-huh. And, you know, you can get massive emails, absolutely. But if you could truly use your peers, and we, we talk about peer-to-peer fundraising. We just had a, another meeting on peer-to-peer fundraising. But if you can get your constituents and you have the ability to build a peer-to-peer fundraising page yourself, but where it is truly connected to that nonprofit, and because when you're writing that strong messaging, you know, as an individual, I'm really sending this to my peers, my colleagues, my friends, uh, my family members, and that database that I'm personally using are people that I truly know. And when I send that email out with a message about the organization that I'm supporting, a number of things happen. One, they're definitely potentially getting new email addresses immediately. And if you set this up right, 
the organization is getting their email address and their first name and their last name. They're also getting notifications that, you know, right. they've, they've given on behalf of a friend. And then that whole social community engagement, because if the, the nonprofit is then reaching back out and engaging them and saying, Hey, you, you know, you just gave on behalf of your friend, Nathan, would you like to learn more about our organization? And I would say 85% of the time, what we've seen is they all say, yes, if my friends do it, yeah, I'd like to learn a little bit more. Can I add you to our newsletter list? So I think there's, and we could probably sit here for a lot of other features and functions of how to gain new email addresses. But I think that's a very strong way just through this whole notion of peer-to-peer -peer fundraising. A lot of times at events, people that attend the events are not the direct, direct uh, invitee, but they're secondary. Someone buys a table, a corporate buys a table, they invite people to sit. That person that's attending that event may not even know what the mission is of the organization that's holding that event. So you want to be able to reach back out to those people that may have had a great event, but they don't even know why they were there, except a friend of them's friend of theirs invited them or or a business relationship invited them to sit at their table. So you want to capture those emails to be able to reach back out to them. So what I suggest to my clients at registration is to have a three by five card on it with a bid number uh, attached to that person. And when they get there and say, well, may we have your email address? Get that gives you uh, that gives you a chance to do an audit on your email addresses, make sure you're getting the one that they think is most current, and let them know you're going to give away a prize of some kind, and you'll be notified by email. And so gather those cards and tell them that they're going to win a weekend getaway, they're going to win a nice dinner, you know, restaurant, whatever it might be, some incentive, and you'll be notified by email, and that'll allow you to do an audit of your emails for the people that are attending that event. And then one other very quick one is if you want to really uh, uh, get people directly and not worry about spam filters and that sort of thing. Uh, run run your silent auction by uh, by text-based bidding because people need to use the text feature to bid and that's an opt-in process. And a text-based database is much more powerful than an email-based database. So uh, I would offer that as an option that they, sh they should consider as well. So there you go. Great advice from everybody. Uh, here today, and uh, I want to thank thank you too for uh, sharing your knowledge uh, with us. And I'll kick it back to David to close up. Well, Jay, thanks for that. And Brian and Nathan, it was such a pleasure having you both on the show today. Just really great. I mean, I these connections and your level of experience and what you're doing in the nonprofit industry is just by far just really enjoyable. And I know our audience really uh, appreciated it. Um, so thank you for that. Thanks for having us. It's definitely a pleasure. Yep. And we also want to thank all of you for being here with us today. And as always, we want to thank our fantastic sponsors, Ariva and Microsoft. Make sure you tune into the next episode of Driven by Cause and make it a great day.